The incredibly astounding message of the Bible is that we can actually have a genuine relationship with the true God of the universe. I was reflecting on Jeremiah 10 the other day and talking to it a little bit, uh, a little bit with my kids about it before going to bed. It's one of those wonderful passages that contrasts the idols of this world made out of wood, covered in silver and gold, who cannot speak or walk and can therefore do no good and no evil, the text says, contrasting those idols with the living God. So Jeremiah 10 verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. That phrase, the living God, made me think of Acts chapter 14 when Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. Some of you will remember, and they, they heal a crippled man. And then the people in Lystra begin to worship them as Zeus and Hermes. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is all wrong. You shouldn't be falling at our feet. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth And the sea and all that is in them. Turn to the living God. The God who is alive. Whom we proclaim here week after week. And it's easy to forget that the central wonder of the Christian faith. Is that we can actually know and be in relationship with the God of heaven and earth. That is an astounding reality. So if you're here this morning as a committed follower of Jesus, perhaps this is something that's begun to be marginalized just through the drip drip nature of everyday life. And it's just good to be reminded of the general great privilege that it is to get to be in relationship to the God of heaven and earth. Or maybe you're here because you're aware of the emptiness of life outside of God, but you you haven't really figured out how to solve that. And you're seeking and you're asking questions We're glad that you're here and we want to join you in that quest as well. Believing that as we have found God to be fully and accurately revealed to us in Jesus Christ, that this is where that longing and searching finds what it's longing for in a relationship with the living God. Perhaps you're here struggling with cynicism about the world and about the church. I want to remind you that though God's intermediaries and the church itself can disappoint us and let us down, That the God who is behind and above and beyond these intermediaries is a God who who deeply desires to know you. To be in relationship with you and who will never fail you or disappoint you. The astonishing reality, of course, is that the God of the universe invites us to know him and to walk with him. I hope that we never make the Christian life more complex than that in some way we are to know God we're looking at Psalm 123 this morning and if you would like to turn there in your Bibles I would encourage you to do so this is a text that helps us come to understand how we might relate to this living God and this is part of our series on the Psalms of Ascents over the summer these are Psalms that were likely used by pilgrims as they journeyed to Jerusalem at least three times a year for the annual festivals And these were a guide, a basic guide to discipleship, to living and walking the way of faith. For us, they're a guide as we travel toward God on the way of Jesus Christ. The psalm is short. It's only four verses long. And it shows us, again, some of the defining features of being in relationship with the living God. So we begin in verse 1 with the opening phrase, To you I lift up my eyes. And this immediately raises the question of focus. 
To what or to whom have we lifted up our eyes in the week that's just passed? I imagine there are constant challenges in your life as there are in mine, constant threats, constant worries, constant responsibilities and tasks. That is life as we know it for all of us. But I wonder in all of this, where are our eyes fixed? And it matters, of course. The psalmist says, to you I lift up my eyes. This is metaphorical. We cannot actually see Jesus and we we cannot see God physically, at least not typically so. But lifting our eyes to him is about being attentive to his presence. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, being attentive to the God who is there. He is there. Many of you, I'm sure, if you have kids, have had the experience of your kids being younger and playing youth or little little kids soccer. Um, I know when we did that with our son, Jameson, I have this experience that I'm sure many of you have had. He'd get out on the field and he'd start playing and then routinely while on the field he would do what he would look up over at his mom and dad you know just kind of look up and glance look up and glance and it was regular and routine as he was getting used to being out on the field and that's a picture of in a sense what the psalmist is doing here looking up and seeing fixing his eyes upon the living God how do we do this in our lives in the midst of all of the distractions and the challenges and I would say there are many ways but the way that this text encourages us to think about his prayer in fact psalm 123 is the first complete prayer in terms of direct address to god of the psalms of ascent and here we have the psalmist turning and addressing god with these four verses prayer is turning our eyes to the living god and being attentive to him how often though we are consumed by the distractions of this world how often we're distracted I don't know about you, but for me, I know that there can often be a barrier to turning my eyes to God in my own soul. Even though I know that it's really good to be attentive to God, I know it's good to be aware of his presence, I often find sometimes that there's just this internal resistance to stopping, pausing, and giving attention to. And I I do think that's actually the work of the enemy. It's the work of the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places who deeply desire to keep us disconnected from God himself not aware of his presence. But God's word reminds us, of course, against this, to pray at all times, to pray without ceasing. I know when we hear those exhortations, most of us feel guilty. We think, well, I I can't do that. But I want you to hear those invitations in the New Testament as just gracious words to you, to live your life before God, to be present to the one who is always and constantly present in our lives. Brother Lawrence was a 17th century Carmelite friar whose teachings were first published widely in 1967 as a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And he writes to encourage us in giving attention to God's presence, even in small moments. Here's one thing that he wrote, quote, he does not ask much of us Merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings, at other times to thank him for the graces past and present. He has bestowed on you. In the midst of your troubles, to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. To you, I lift up my eyes. 
the psalmist says. Where are you focused? But let me ask, why would we want to lift our eyes up to him? Why would we want to pray without ceasing? Why do we want to give the Lord our attention? The pilgrim's prayer continues in verse 1. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. It is because of his position, his power, his unmatched splendor and glory and holiness. He is the king of the heavens to whom everything belongs and to whom all power and authority and dominion belong rightly. And everything, and I mean everything that we see in our lives, belongs to him. Look at your spouse, your children, your friends, your home, your backyard, your neighborhood. All that you see is his and belongs to him and is under his sovereign rule and his providential guidance and oversight. Lifting our eyes to this one, to the living God, is turning to the one who is in charge. And we all get this instinctively. This is a bit like an athlete seeking out an audience with the head coach to deal with a problem in the locker room. Or a student wrestling with issues in the classroom who goes to see the teacher. Or a parent unhappy with things that are going on in the school, contacting the principal. We understand this basic idea that we want to talk to the one who's in charge, who can make a difference in the world in which we live, in the situations that we're wrestling with. To you, I lift up my eyes, is to you the one who is enthroned in the heavens, the cosmic king, the principal, if you will, of the entire cosmos. And so we turn our eyes to him. It's easy actually to forget this about God. It's easy for us to have a diminished view of God more and more rather than to see him as he's revealed to us in his word. That's why we come back week after week and hopefully day after day to his word so that we get a proper understanding and a view of who God really is. Think about it. When Jesus was asked, how do we pray, Lord? Teach us how to pray. What did he say? You remember how we did it? We've already prayed this today. Our Father who art in heaven. It's as if Jesus knew that we would need this daily reminder about our God being the cosmic king of all, the sovereign Lord who rules and reigns over everything that we see. We need to be regularly reminded of God's position and it reassures us in the midst of our, our, our circumstances that no matter what we're facing and no matter how overwhelmed we are in our lives, no matter uh, what the challenges are, how discouraged we're tempted to become, that we are in relationship with this sovereign God for whom nothing is impossible. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's contrasting the true living God with the idols in Psalm 115. And I wonder if you believe that this morning and you remember that. That this is the very nature of the God that we pray to and, and turn our eyes to. Kids and teenagers who are among us this morning, do you know that? Do you know that God is in the heavens and he does all that is good? That he's over your life and your schools and your friends, even if those things are hard for you right now? God is over them, sovereign and reigning over them. And there's no part of your life that he does not rule and direct. So we lift our eyes to him because he is the one, as verse 1 says, who is enthroned in the heavens. He is the sovereign Lord. But this then raises another question. So how are we to relate to the sovereign king to whom we lift our eyes. And that's where we see some insight in verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy 
upon us. Using a simile here, the psalmist clarifies for us what our relation to the living God actually is, this king enthroned in the heavens, that we are servants and he is the high king. We look to him, we lift our eyes to him as servants look to their masters, he says. This is the basic posture of the relation between the sovereign king and mankind. He is king and we are his servants. Yes, we are his servants whom he loves deeply, whom he knows fully, for whom he has given his only son to die that we might come into relationship with him. All of those things are true and we are adopted into his family as more than servants, of course, as sons and daughters of the high king. But nonetheless, this category of servant is what Psalm 123 uses to to clarify for us our relation to the living God. How does the Apostle Paul often introduce himself in his letters? You might remember in Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, doulos. We are servants. And it seems to me there are two observations to make about this reality. The first is this. That a servant's highest aim and highest end, their chief purpose is to do the bidding of his or her master. That is, we are to be obedient subjects whose wills and minds and hearts are attuned to the will of God, the God that we serve, the God who reigns. Which means that in this relationship with the living God that is such a privilege for us, we don't come with our demands. We don't come to negotiate. We don't come with a claim upon God. In fact, the passage that we read in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector, what a beautiful picture of this contrast between one person who says, I've got a claim on you because of my righteous behavior. I do all of these things. I'm not like those people. And then another man who says, look, won't even lift up his eyes. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. No claim upon you. I wholly depend upon your graciousness to have any connection with you at all. We have no claim upon him. And that's what it means to be a servant of the high king. We come to him to do what he asks us to do. You might remember that Jesus teaches at one point in Luke 17 that after we've done everything to do God's will, we are simply to say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And Jesus, of course, is the chief example of this way of relating to the heavenly king. When he says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. I I exist, Jesus says, to do the work of the Father. That's why I'm here. And that's why you and I are here. And that's part of what it means to be a servant. Is that we do the bidding of another. And I want to say, acknowledging this is not diminishing or demeaning to us as human beings. In fact, we take the place at the apex of creation. We've been given... We we were created in the image of God to rule and to reign over his world. But we were always given that privileged position as those underneath the authority of God. And where we get into trouble, the very nature of sin, is when we reject the limitations and design that our creator has given and put into the world of creation and upon us. And we usurp them to become our own king. And that's in fact exactly what sin is. Sin is the rejection of the authority of God in our lives and taking upon ourselves some other authority or our own authority and becoming rival kings to his lordship. That always leads to diminishment. It always leads to enslavement to some less benevolent kind of God, little g. 
rather than being a servant of the high king, which sets us free. There's a wonderful prayer that begins, O God, the author of peace and lover of concord, to know you is eternal life and to serve you is perfect freedom. But the second observation about a servant, and one that actually is more central to our text in Psalm 123, is this, that the servant lives in a posture of humble dependence, dependence upon the goodwill, favor, and mercy of his or her master. The look here that's being described in verse 2 is not a look characterized by fear or uncertainty. Rather, it is a look that is characterized by hopefulness in awaited mercy or favor. Embedded within this simile with the picture is, of verse 2 is the responsibility of masters and mistresses to, to and for their servants. There was an obligation in that relationship for provision, care, and protection from the master to the servant. And it's that understanding that informs this metaphor. The lifting up of our eyes to God is a humble, hopeful, dependent kind of look awaiting God being merciful or having favor upon us this all-powerful king. And we might say, well, why in our relationship with the living God should we hope for that? Why on our pilgrimage should we have confidence in the character of our king? Remember, the psalmist says, till he has mercy upon us, we look to you. And it's because this is a fundamental part of his character. When God reveals himself, he reveals himself as a God of graciousness and favor and mercy. The word translated here in our psalm, have mercy, is more frequently translated in the psalm simply as be gracious or show favor. Mercy tends to make us think of our unworthiness, which is always true. None of us are worthy of the favor of God, of course. But the focus here is actually on the disposition of the king, the enthroned one in the heavens. It's upon his disposition to be favorable and generous and gracious to his people, to his servants. When God is made known to Moses in Exodus 34, this paradigmatic revelation of God in the Old Testament, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The root word there for gracious is actually the same root word here for have mercy. This is a part of his character, deep part of his character. In the words of one Old Testament commentator, quote, it expresses the disposition and action of a superior to be for those who are related as dependents, end quote. It is God's commitment to show favor to us and to be gracious to us that is revealed as a very, the very essence of his character. And of course, his actions make this abundantly clear, don't they? We trace this throughout the biblical witness, but the exodus deliverance for the people of God from Egypt and slavery, God intervenes, God hears their cry, God shows them grace, even God's ongoing grace and mercy in the moment of the golden calf incident after they were wayward and ran away from him. God forgives and says, I'll remain present with you. That is your only hope. And then you get the book of Leviticus sharing with us how a holy God could dwell among a sinful people in the provision of the sacrificial system and the priests, and all of the things that God enabled for his presence to dwell with them. God is fundamentally gracious, and his grace is manifest in giving himself to us deeply and wonderfully. And the psalmist knows this. And of course, for us as New Testament believers, where do we see the grace and benevolence of God most of all? It is, of course, at the cross of Calvary, 
where God in the person of his son would go to such great lengths to demonstrate his love for us, to show us favor, to deal with our deep sickness and despair and disease and sin, that we might be raised to new life with him and enjoy fellowship with him, the living God, for the rest of our days and for all eternity. God reveals his character as gracious and God's actions reveal him as gracious as well. And the psalmist says, we look to you as a servant to his master, as a maidservant to her mistress. So our eyes look to you until you have mercy, until you are gracious to us. There's a confidence in this look. There's an assurance in this look because this is who God has revealed himself to be. Let me stop here for a moment and just say, our only hope in life and death is that God is a merciful and gracious God. Amen? It's true. There's nothing else that we have to hold on to other than the character. I mean, this is at the heart of the Christian word and gospel and witness is a God, not only that you can be in relationship with him, but that he has gone to such great lengths to enable us to know him. We deserve none of it, nothing. And so every single one of us learns from this psalm the posture of what it means to follow him is the posture of being a servant who looks to a gracious king and says, I'm waiting upon you to be gracious. Now, there's always a different path that we can choose. And it's not so explicit here, but I think it's worth exploring for just a moment that, that can define our relation to God. And it's not the path of waiting and looking it's the path of taking over and stepping in. Let me illustrate with uh, the, the great story of Abram and Sarai in Genesis 16. You might remember they'd been promised a, an heir, someone who would be the, the child of promise through whom God's promises to bless the nations would come about. And yet they'd had to wait and they were waiting and they were waiting. They were living in the, the, the drudgery of everyday mundane life in the ancient Near Eastern world. And they finally got tired of waiting. They got tired of waiting until he has mercy or shows favor to us. And so what did they do? They stepped out of the posture of waiting, which is the posture of faith. And they took things into their own hands. Remember? And they took Sarai's servant Hagar and they decided to produce an heir through her instead. This would be a good plan. Certainly this would be more tangible and, and, and physical and we, we knew this was going to happen. And, and, and so we made this happen, right? And God is not pleased. Because they didn't wait upon him. We always have the temptation instead of looking to the king of heaven. Waiting until he is gracious to us. Of getting impatient and stepping out. Saul does the same thing. Remember in 1 Samuel 13. He's waiting at Gilgal for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice to bless the people. And he waits the intended time. Samuel hasn't come yet. And he says, all right, enough. I'm done. I'm going to step out now and do things in my own terms. And so he executes the burnt offering himself only to bring condemnation upon himself and to begin to lose the kingdom. And that's always our temptation. Instead of the psalmist here who's waiting, our temptation is always to get impatient. It's to step out from underneath the gracious care of God and wait upon his timing, which is always good and always perfect, and to force things in our own way. Will we wait upon him? This kind of waiting and looking and crying out is the Christian life, really. It is waiting upon the God of grace and mercy. That's all that it is. Through a world of tears and challenges and trials, we wait upon him, which means we retain this posture of faithfulness. Let's think as we draw more to a close, how is this waiting defined? And this is verses three and four in our text. 
Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. You could translate verse 4, our our soul has been filled to the brim with the, the scorn of those who are at ease. We're overfilled, O God, with the difficulties and trials of this life, of the contempt of those who are at ease. Those who are at ease mean those who have stopped waiting, who have forsaken that posture of a servant which is the only place that we can truly flourish and live as human beings and taken the place of rival kings and they've rejected the ways of righteousness and justice you can read about this this expression is used in Amos 6 but we won't go there for the sake of time but there there are those who have stepped out and they're now causing scorn and contempt to fall upon the people of God we wait that is by making petition that's what the psalmist shows us here Verses 1 and 2, it was really clarifying what the relationship is between us and the living God. But verses 3 and 4 show us how we retain, how we walk in that relationship. It's by this impassioned petition, which comes out of the context of trouble and starts with honesty. I always say the best place to start in a life of prayer is to be truthful. If you don't know how to pray, the best thing to do is just to start telling God what's really going on in your life and in your heart and your brain. Just be truthful. And we see the psalmist doing that here, don't we? At the end of verse 3 and and, and in verse 4. More than enough. We've had it, God. That's what he's saying. We've had it. We're overdone. But instead of stepping out like Abram and Sarah or like Saul or like we are so tempted to do, the psalmist stays in there, hangs in there and cries out to God. Have mercy upon us. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Or we could translate it, be gracious to us. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. You notice how the Lord is surrounded literarily in the text by a plea for mercy and grace. This is the defining posture of what it means to wait upon him in the midst of this world of trouble. Be gracious. Calvin said about this text that this prayer could be the prayer for the church in every generation. And I think he's absolutely right. This is our prayer. And my point is is that as we wait in this relationship of servants before the king, the occupation of our waiting It's the petitions of prayer. It's the lifting up of our eyes to the Lord. Being attentive to his presence. And crying out to him for grace and favor. This is what we are called to do and to be. As pilgrims in a weary and dry land. There will of course be challenges along the way. In this case they're external. Those who are proud and those who are at ease. But there will always be challenges. And Jesus in the life of the apostles, it leads us to expect this and to place our hope in him alone. Are you waiting upon the Lord? Are you lifting your eyes to him who is enthroned in the heavens? I remember reading uh, as I close the, the biography that Eric Metaxas wrote of Bonhoeffer many years ago and I loaned it out to somebody and so I couldn't actually reference it uh, directly. But I remember being struck as I, I, I read the, uh, the final account, the final morning, April 9th, 1945, when he faced the firing squad and lost his life. And I think, you know, Bonhoeffer was waiting upon the Lord. How did God answer that prayer for mercy and grace? How did he answer him? And I think that it was so evident to me as I read that account that the answer of God's mercy and grace was not actually in the changing of the difficult circumstances in which Bonhoeffer was in. God could have done that, but did not in his case. 
but it was in the strength and peace and magnificence of soul that was found within his breast. This man who on the last day of his life, knowing he would face the firing squad in just an hour or two, led a gathering of prisoners in worship and preached to them from God's word and ministered to their needs, even to his final breath. God often answers our prayer for grace and favor and mercy in the giving of himself in deeper measure that we might have souls that face the trials of this world with courage and peace and sacrificial love to the end of our days. It is true, though, that one day the circumstances will change entirely. One day everything will be turned on its head. One day the king, who is the ruler of the universe, will be displayed and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that is true today and we are in relationship with him today. And he will give us strength and mercy and favor to walk through whatever it is that you're facing in this week ahead. And one day it will all be made clear and true. And that's our great hope. So continue forward, pilgrims, on the way to God, which is Jesus Christ. Look to him, cry out to him, wait for him. He is merciful and he is gracious. Let's pray. Our eyes do look to you this morning, O oh God, you who are enthroned in the heavens. And we look to you as servants to our King until you have mercy upon us. I pray, Lord, that by your grace and favor you would rend the heavens this morning, that you would come down in abundance in your grace and favor, O oh Lord, which we do not deserve in the slightest and that you would fill us with life and strength and peace and restore to us as your people the joy of your salvation. Lord, we wait upon you. Be gracious, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.